And we'll just trim off this the fat at the beginning. Is that the? I think that's the idea. Okay, cool. The New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, featuring your host Gabe Ryder. Welcome to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. I'm Gabe Reinick, and this is Ken Holyoke. Um, so the goal here is that we're going to spend the next year fortnightly explaining New Brunswick archaeology to you within our, our limited capacity to do so. And so what we're going to do this episode is talk a little bit about each other, which is something we know a lot about. Um, and we're hoping to try to enlist you um, to trust us here as we talk about New Brunswick archaeology. But we were, before, we, before we do that, we were going to start off by, we don't have the rights to any intro music. We know that's hard to believe for a, for a high-budget operation that you can already tell this is. Yeah. So we were going to tell you what, what sound music we would have once we finally get the exciting um, special men's underwear and uh, energy drink podcast sponsors. So Ken, if, if we were going to start off on this with some music, what would, what would have been playing? I think the uh, the log drivers waltz uh, would be a would it be a good intro to uh, New Brunswick archaeology. You know, uh, tied in with some heritage minutes. Oh wow! Okay, that's that's subtle. That's uh, I was just gonna suspect. I thought you were gonna say digging a hole by Big Sugar. Oh, that would be a good one actually. That would Not be a good. bad one. Yeah, I, and I, I thought maybe digging in the dirt by Peter Gabriel would be yeah. would be where to start. Yeah. Um. So we'll we'll give the listener a second to to meditate on that uh, on that thought and they can pick whichever one they want so i mean uh, talk- now that i'm here i guess it could be all hell for a basement uh in uh, the heaven in alberta yeah exactly and so so you, you mentioned alberta this is a new brunswick archaeology podcast um and you're in alberta so so tell us about yourself ken you, you work at university of lethbridge yep so i'm a, an assistant professor at the university of lethbridge i'm in the department of geography and environment um and uh we're home to three archaeologists in our geography department and another one in the anthropology department. And uh, I started there in July. Um, I'm uh, finishing my PhD at the University of Toronto uh, and uh, did my master's at UNB in Fredericton. Uh, same with my undergrad. Um, this is where I met the illustrious Dr. Reinick uh, is, uh, during our master's degree at the University of New Brunswick. Um, and I've been working in New Brunswick archaeology uh, really since 2008, um, uh, in the field at least. So started in CRM uh, at that time uh, at the end of my undergrad and and, uh, worked professionally between 2012 and 2017 when I went back to school. Great. So, so what's what's CRM? We'll walk you back for just a second. Oh yeah, yeah. We, we don't lose we don't the lose the listeners here. Yeah, uh, exactly. cultural resource management. So impact assessment archaeology, um, and so. Uh, if you're working professionally in archaeology in North America, um, something like 90 to 95% of people who are employed um, in full-time equivalent positions would probably be employed in CRM industry. So you might be working as a private consultant for um, a small independent company. So you might own your own company uh, or a multi-service firm. Uh, so maybe a large environmental consulting firm. Uh, you might be working for a government branch who either regulates or participates in the CRM industry. Uh, you might be working for a university who has a CRM company or has some CRM affiliation. Um, 
and uh, or you know government agencies like Parks Canada or the National Park Service in the states. Fantastic. And and if I'm remembering correctly, Ken, you've worked for actually all of those groups you just mentioned. In, in your uh, a couple, a few. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so. Uh, but you've worked for private consulting firms here in New Brunswick, and you worked for Parks in New Brunswick too, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, we were contracted for Parks in Atlantic Canada when I worked in private consulting, but I worked for Parks in Southern Ontario um, uh, in uh, at the Rouge National Urban Park. Um, that's where I was based out of. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And um, a, little, a little stint in BC uh, for some CRM, but most of it in the Maritimes in Atlantic Canada. Yeah. Great. Which is where you're from too. You're, you're a, you're a legit New Brunswicker. Legit New Brunswicker. Yeah. Yeah. The listener won't be able to, the astute listener will already pick that up from your voice. Yeah. The hard um, R's still come through. Yeah. This is how they're going to tell us apart. They're going to, they're going to recognize that. Well, the one that sounds like he's actually from New Brunswick. And then there's the one with the, the high lispy New England accent. Um, <laughs> Which 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 makes me the the interloper, even though I'm in New Brunswick now. So I'm Gabe Reinick, and um, I'm a professor, assist, associate professor at the University of New Brunswick, which, like Ken said, is where I did my master's degree, and then um, the rest of graduate school at the University of Connecticut, and then came back here. And um, in addition to to Ken being a more legitimate New Brunswicker than me, uh, most of my research has actually lately been in Maine. Um, but I've also worked in cultural resource management in New Brunswick, um, as well as in uh, as well as in Maine, yeah, and and other parts of New England, um, the Mid Atlantic, uh, and I've done some research in Nova Scotia as well. So our interest, though, I think, uh, in New Brunswick archaeology. So if this might be something that that would be useful to kind of chase out because I think it might illustrate some things about New Brunswick archaeology. So. So why are you interested in New Brunswick archaeology, Ken, or uh, about the region in general? Basically, I mean, I grew up there. Um, I'm, you know, most of my work has been uh, along the Wolostog River, the St. John River, um, and it's in like the lakes and, and rivers going into it. Um, I grew up uh, in Keswick Ridge, which is west of Fredericton, um, uh, basically on a tributary of the Wolostog River, and, and I've got a cottage that's uh, on on a head pond actually that was made by the Mactaquac Dam as a result of that. Um, but really it's uh, New Brunswick archeology span is kind of, um, it's been interesting for me just because it's the history of where I grew up, but it's also, um, it's interesting because it's it's a little bit like a sandbox in some ways because um, it's a fairly small, re uh, it's a small part of a small region. Um, there's a, a fairly active, but a small group of researchers in this region. And uh, uh, there's a lot of big questions that we can answer um, about Northeastern North America, but also about uh, Indigenous history uh, more generally in North America um, by using case studies from the region. Um, and so uh, I think there's lots of fascinating stories to tell, and there's so many that are left untold um, that I think it's uh, kind of a, it's, it's uh, you can be a big fish in a small pond pretty easily here, uh, basically, so. Yeah, so I think that's that's one of the things that um, I know we we've, we've talked about this a lot. And so, so this is for the, for the listener. What we're essentially doing is we're 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 miking up conversations that Ken and I have pretty regularly, either this way or over drinks at conferences or when we're at each other's house or via text message, just with more typos um, and you know maybe fewer emojis than you'd think. But um, but so so. I think what sort of kept both of us in this in this region is that thing that you mentioned, which is that there's all sorts of big questions you can answer, you can start to address 
with this really underutilized data set out here. And I think I think that's sort of why we're doing this podcast, right? Is that we want to explore some of those things. Um, and at the end of this, uh, are they called apps? I think they're called apps, right? Uh, yeah, episodes, yeah. It's, okay, it's, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a better format than like trying to snake through like a, I don't know, a mile long text message conversation that's been going on for a long time. It's uh, easier to get back to the conversation if we have, have something documented. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, no, it's good. I mean, plus with like the screen fatigue, this way we can listen to it and we don't yeah. have to put on the like fancy blue glasses and stuff. So that'll be good. Um, and then the other thing you mentioned that, that, that we should also mention is that we're in the or I'm in the unceded territory of the Wabanaki. Um, and that's, and that's the region we're going to be talking about. And so we'll have a, um, an episode um, talking about indigenous archeology span and sort of the importance of considering um, indigenous perspectives on archeology span in this region. Yep. And, and, we're I'm also talking, talk and I'm talking to you guys here today from um, the uh, Treaty 7 territory. So the home of the Blackfoot, the Satina, Stony Dakota, uh, Bigani and uh, Kenai and, uh, and uh, Métis, Alberta Métis Region 3. Yeah. Um, and in addition to that, we're going to also talk about historical archaeology at some point. So the show will take a, a roughly, this season anyway, it will take a roughly sequential approach to some big questions in archaeology. And we're looking forward to that a lot. Guide um, you along through 13,000 years of history. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, 13,000 13, years, 30 minutes at a time, something like that. Um, <laughs> The uh, and, and for those of you that are listening, you're going to get the special experience that talking about archaeology, if, if you're not watching this, if you're just listening to this, talking about archaeology um, is sort of like, it's like trying to describe a spiral staircase without using your hands. <laughs> so, so, but we'll do our best to, to get you to get you through it. Um, so to, to get back to this idea of some big questions that we think the region can offer, uh, what is it you're working on, Ken? Um, for the listener. So uh, I've been working on a project for, as part of my dissertation, um, uh, doing basically quarry sourcing work. So uh, tracing stone tools back to their geological origin, um, uh, essentially to try to map out um, social relationships and economic relationships among Wabanaki in the past. Um, this research has been primarily focused on a source for stone on Washtomoak Lake in South Central New Brunswick. So if you're uh, thinking about uh, the geography of New Brunswick, if you probably know where Grand Lake is, it's the next lake sort of down, down the river. Um, and so uh, in around uh, uh, Cambridge Narrows and, and uh, that area um, of uh, South Central New Brunswick. Um, and my work has involved some geoarchaeological work. So doing, um, uh, going out and collecting geological samples, recording archaeological sites, um, some limited excavation work, um, and trying to answer, yeah, basically questions about how people were interacting with one another, um, sort of building towards a, a larger narrative of um, rethinking the way that we think about how people were using and thinking about stones in the past, um, which has always been sort of framed in an economic um, uh, uh, framework of, of sort of talking about how groups would uh, sort of probably pick the least cost path or the most optimal way of collecting and using rocks. Uh, and what I'm arguing is maybe that, uh, that this had something uh, maybe a, a, a bit more to do with uh, a personal aesthetic uh, preference or um, uh, maybe a ritual or social importance 
um, and how by tracking a stone through time uh, and its distribution, you might be able to tell a bigger story about that. Um, and that research is sort of wrapping up um, as I finish up the last of my PhD work. Um, uh, we've had some interesting finds at a possible secondary quarry. I, I don't really know what it is yet, uh, but uh, um, but I'm, I'm also working kind of on what the next thing is. And so um, maybe over the course of this podcast, I'll be able to talk about a little bit more about what the next project is. But uh, um, uh, I have an interest in lithics basically more generally as a way to answer questions about how people were moving around the landscapes, um, the places that they were and the people who they were interacting with. Um, but I've also had the opportunity to work with Gabe too on a number of projects uh, um, uh, in, in his own research too, so. Yeah, and that, and that's that's been a lot of fun. So I, I want to go back here a little bit just to this lith, this lithics thing. So that's what archaeologists call rocks. Um, but I I think the project you're working on kind of illustrates two um, two interesting things that maybe you could explore a little bit. So um, so from indigenous perspectives, people have been in New Brunswick since time immemorial. But for archaeologists, we have evidence for about thirteen thousand years of human occupation here in New Brunswick or in the Northeast. And so how, how, um, how much time depth is there on your research? I just, I think this is kind of interesting because I think one of the unique things that archeologists have um, as a perspective on the past that other disciplines don't are, are we deal with these really big time slots, right? And so, um, you know, I, I always tell intro students that, um, you know, sure you, you take some class about, uh, uh, you know, Canada, since confederation over in the history department or you can take you know some class in anthropology that's like ooze to tools you know and uh <laughs> so, so really big perspective um but and the stuff you're working on is is maybe thirteen thousand years old and not yeah to, not to sort of sneak preview this too much yeah so so washtemo chert um uh or what appears to be washtemo chert we don't know this for sure because there's um with rocks you to, to be able to sort of conclusively say that they come from a particular place, um, you need to do geochemical analysis on them. Um, and uh, that hasn't happened with a lot of the archaeological resources um, uh, or archaeological objects uh, for a number of reasons, uh, which I don't think really need to get into that nitty gritty of a detail. But there's an archaeological site in Nova Scotia, um, which is probably the oldest in the Maritimes, or at least in the, the Canadian Maritime provinces. Um, at DeBert, um, uh, close to Truro. Uh, and I think it, the, it's like the, the average in the Lothrop article is like 12,600 is kind of what the radiocarbon dates come out to. Yeah, so about, something like that. Yeah. So, so the site is somewhere between probably 12,400 to 12,600 years old. Um, and there is what appears to be Washtemo Chert associated with that. And that's kind of the, um, we see kind of a flash of use of Washtemo Chert at DeBert um, in South Nova Scotia, and a couple of places in around New Brunswick that indicate probably it was being used between about 12 and a half thousand years ago up to probably around 10,000 years ago, um, and then stops for about 6,000 years or so. Um, and, uh, and for why, we don't really know. Um, but uh, I, I suspect some of it has to do with uh, the changing landscape that uh, ancestral Wabanaki were living in. So you have changing water levels, um, maybe access to the source was different, um, or maybe they were going to a different source during the Paleo-Indian period. So this older time period, about 12,500 years ago. Um, and then 
the source at Bellier's Cove on, on Washtomoak Lake um, maybe became accessible or would have become accessible sometime around uh, 3,800 to 4,000 years ago. And maybe that's why people started using it again. So, so we've got this, this time depth, I think, of, of what we're going to talk about in this, in this program. But then I think one of the other things that we're going to stress, and because I know this is like an interest of both of ours, is just um, the connections between New Brunswick and the rest of the world, right? Um, which are really, really interesting, actually. And so um, one of the things we know, right, is that maybe yeah, at, at between 12 and 13,000 years ago, the folks that are living here seem to show remarkable technological similarities with people all over North America, right? They're using similar tools. Um, and so that's a really profound connection between, you know, what we, I mean, what you and I describe often as the far Northeast, right? This idea that's this place that's, that's really far away from everything else. It's, it's, it's far north, almost as far Northeast as you can get, um, you know, without, I don't know, Portugal or something. Yeah. And, um, and uh, so, but what's the furthest away you found this material from, or found evidence or heard about evidence of this material that's from Cambridge Narrows? So it's potentially getting as far away as New York State, which is kind of cool. Um, and so we know that um, exchange networks during the Paleoindia period, so this group uh, of people who lived um, in the Maritimes, probably from about 12,900 years ago to about um, what, 9,500 years ago? Is that where we kind of settled the end of the yeah, Paleo period now? Yeah, 9,000, um, yeah. And uh, uh, so they were exchanging stone tools over a fairly large area and were able to kind of figure out where people might have been going or who, who they might have been interacting with just based on distinctive types of stone that are found at these sites all around. Um, and, you know, often in Paleo-Indian sites throughout the region, um, you're finding stone that's been traveling for, uh, that has traveled either with people or been exchanged over a distance of some several hundred kilometers. Um, and in the case of this potential point, uh, diagnostic point, or, or very characteristic style of arrowhead um, uh, that's found in New York State, it appears to be this material from um, South Central New Brunswick, um, which is which is fascinating because it shows that there's connections um, over a fairly broad area, which we know exist at other sites, um, but it ties people to a place in New Brunswick as well, um, which which we don't actually know as well uh, during that Paleo-Indian period. Yeah, that's great. So I sort of love that because that that means that one point like overturns the you know the the two big myths right about New Brunswick archaeology right that people haven't been here that long, and that it's this sort of you know place that's literally and figuratively provincial right. It's this place yeah. where there aren't these big connections, but in fact there's these really huge connections. Yeah. And it's um, funny because we talk about the Maritime Peninsula and it was even more of a peninsula back then. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Yeah. So the and so what Ken's talking about the Maritime Peninsula is basically the eastern Wabanaki homeland. So in 1955, this guy named Bernard Hoffman wrote a dissertation out of Berkeley about the Maritime Peninsula. I, I think that is that the first reference to it? Is the first I think so, I yeah. 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 And that's basically, you know, Maine past basically Biddeford. Uh, and not counting Western Maine, and then it includes the Maritime Provinces and then the Gaspé region of Quebec. And so that in some ways represents this kind of interesting unified um, cultural place. I mean, you know, the, and I think maybe that idea of homeland is pretty profound going even back, back into the past. Yeah, and, and if you think about this time period, you're talking about a group of people who have a shared technology 
um, Clovis, like, or um, so we, we call these distinctive arrowheads Clovis. Um, and although there were humans in North America prior to Clovis, this it's sort of this first like kind of cultural tradition that spreads across all of North America um, and rapidly too. Like, you know, within uh, people are in the Maritimes within about 500 years of we of us seeing them in like the Southwest of the United States kind of thing. Um, sort of these are you, as you said, intrepid explorers that are kind of making their way to what would effect, effectively be the end of the world at that time, you know, like you're, you're sort of marching eastward um, as far as you can go. Yeah, and, and at rates faster than, you know, pretty much any hunter-gatherer analog, you know, that we know of, right? Just this yeah. massively fast colonization event um, that links the whole continent. That's, I agree, it's super cool. Um, so, and so we're, we're sort of, we're teasing stuff, I guess, now that we're going to talk about a little bit, but I, I think it's kind of useful to, to think about both that big time depth and that big, just the, the kind of regions that we're tapped into. So, um, but what we probably should have done uh, already is say, because we're trying to pitch this to a bit of a general audience, I think, um, you know, what is archaeology? And, and yeah. uh, I'm going to interrupt Ken here a little bit, because the, the way I like to think about this is so very first archaeology class I took was at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. And um, the teacher who was teaching that course had, and this is funny, you mentioned you mentioned people before um, before Clovis. He had been the, the teaching assistant at uh, uh, Meadowcroft, which is a purported pre, pre-Clovis site. He's actually the guy, apparently, who found the piece of charcoal that returned the really old date. It's a guy named David Clark. And David Clark, my understanding is, was this uh, old kind of battle-hardened Marine. And he, um, I, I, I don't know if the, if the listener is familiar with a Pittsburgh accent, and I can't really do it, but I often had a really hard time understanding what he what he was saying. And and he, uh, you get in there, and it's this, and this, this guy, and he's, uh, archaeology is the study of the human, the human past. And, but I misheard, and I, and I thought he said the human path. And, but I've kind of stuck with that because that actually makes a little more sense than archaeology being the study of the human past. It was a good class, by the way. So, you yeah. know, I learned a lot. But, the, um, but, uh, but it's kind of that idea that as humans are, are sort of moving through the world, they're kind of creating this, this path, right? And just like any other path, it's, it's limited. You can only tell so much about whatever was there before. Um, but you pick up these little fragments and you're sort of going around behind getting a, a really limited, you know, a, a tiny percentage of the, the kind of things people leave behind and trying to infer um, what they did and how they lived their lives and, and trying to impart degrees of humanity um, onto them. Um, and so, so what would you add to that definition of, of archaeology, Ken? I know you're teaching intro. I'm blessedly on sabbatical right now. So you're you're more. I, I, I don't actually teach intro. I, oh, I teach, teach uh, okay. I, get, I get them in their third year. So they, they already know what archaeology is or should. Uh, yeah, I think they do. do. I don't think. I, I, I'm yeah. not sure they all do, but yeah, um, uh, yeah. I like the I like the idea of path, and I think it's like a dendritic path too. You know, it's like it's going off in many different directions, and some of it is trodden a little bit more than other paths, and and so you can tell a little bit more about certain paths, and then some of them just sort of trail off into the woods, and you lose that that thread, right? Um, uh, but certainly, yeah, it's like uh, I, I like to describe it as a um, uh, it's like a big puzzle that you're missing a bunch of pieces to. Um, and so, you know, you don't always get, uh, but if you stand back far enough, you can see sort of what the picture is supposed to be. 
Um, but then when you look in at it, you, you see that there's all these pieces missing or it's, or maybe one of those photos that's made up of all the different photos. Um, and you can see what yeah. it's made of. Um, but yeah, yeah I, like I, I, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the, uh, the art book description of it, but, uh, yeah. uh, but certainly I think it's, um, I think it is importantly, um, it's about telling histories and stories, um, about the past that, um, that don't speak for themselves through text and things like that. You know, that it's, it's an interpretation of the past. Um, and it's, uh, and it is about, and I think it is important that stories are included in that and that it's not just cut and dry data. There is, you know, an archeologist is telling one interpretation of a past. And, and, uh, and I think that that's what makes archeology span interesting is that you have a number of different people looking at sometimes the same things and coming up with different ways to describe it and, and uh, help other people understand what was going on, you know, in the last 13,000 years. Yeah. And, and you and I are both, um, I mean, certainly are all your degrees are in anthropology, right? I think. Yeah. Yeah. And mine are too. And, and that's, so that's an interesting thing about North American archeology span is that we take anthropological perspective. So what, what does that mean? You know, it means that, anthropology is the study of humans right and and that's really really broad you know and but in practice it's it's got all sorts of problematic colonial baggage and that kind of thing but it involves you know the the sort of things i think that people think about when they think about anthropologists questions of social organization questions of humans interacting with one another and historically an emphasis on non-western groups of people do you think that's a fair assessment yeah. Yeah. And, and to add to archaeology too, like it's, it's within anthropology, but we have the, you know, archaeology is a very material culture based discipline, right? So it's tactile. It's often like what we're dealing with are the things uh, of the past and, you know, the um, material remains of the past, basically. Yeah. So, you know, arrowheads, which archaeologists call projectile points to alienate people, um, spear points, ceramics, you know, right up till the present, right? You know, people who or, study or house floors, like you do, house floors. Yeah, so I, I'm a house floor person. We'll, we'll get by, back to you because we haven't training. had a chance to talk about what your uh, your, oh, your yeah, real yeah. house is. Yeah, we'll yeah. loop back. Yeah, the the, um, but uh, yeah. So, um, and I think that's that's one of the the that's what we're going to try to talk about in this podcast, essentially, right? Yeah. So it's funny, actually, you mentioned house floors, right? So, um. So, so Ken said, I work on house floors and house floors are maybe more, they, they really, really closely resemble a human path in the instance so that I've worked on mostly uh, Wabanaki house floors within the last 3000 years, um, which are interesting for a whole bunch of reasons we'll talk about at a particular later episode. But there are these, what archaeologists call features and features are just immovable artifacts. So you know, an artifact that you can't, or at least you shouldn't huck out of the ground and just try to take back to the lab in a bag to study. So you, you dig them. Ken and I, Ken and I have dug some very cool ones together, actually. We've had, yeah. uh, had a lot of fun. In interesting ways. Yeah, yeah. Part of what, what draws me or keeps me excited about archaeology, I think, is actually kind of encompassed in how you think about a house floor, which is there are these really interesting places where, where all, pretty much all members of a society come together, right? Because, you know, what is that pretty much everyone does? Everyone pretty much sleeps indoors. It's a very human thing. 
Um, what do families do? Families come together around hearths and interact with one another. And you can learn a lot about trying to piece together those interactions based on how people live together. And I think one of the other exciting things about humanity um, is so Ken, and I think, I, and I hope this is something we kind of impart to the, um, to the listener. I mean, I think we're both generalists in a sense, but I think your research highlights the really big picture interactions that people have, right, over huge swaths of area. You know, how, how are people in New Brunswick, you know, even meeting people in New York, right, let alone interacting with them enough to exchange chert and maybe through intermediaries or maybe, you know, directly going there. We'll talk more about that later in this, the season, I guess it's called. And, um, and uh, where the house floor is, is a much more personal, uh, kind of connected place where, where, uh, where people who really, really know each other well are interacting on a daily basis, right? So um, we've got all these different scales, you know, and we know that, that it's, we don't see the actual stains in the ground for the, the house floors that are almost 13,000 years ago, but we do see clusters of artifacts that indicate you know, where people built their, built their tents. And we see within some, some of those clusters of artifacts, really good evidence for how people actually structured their society, maybe according to gender, maybe according to uh, people's relative rank within society. And there's this, this great quote from um, uh, Barry Dana. I read it in the Bangor Daily News uh, years ago. Um, and he was building, and he, and he um, was an uh, important uh, Penobscot chief and, and uh, intellectual, I think would be fair to say. And one of the, and they were building these wigwams to, as a sort of uh, display at the Hudson Museum in Orono, Maine. And he described them as a teaching tool from the ancestors. And I thought that was really like a nice kind of continuity, right? Bring this 13,000 years ago, right up to the present, right? So you and I both take this kind of, um, we're pretty continuity oriented, I think, in our views of of um, basically the connections between the really deep past and contemporary indigenous people. And so one of the things that, yeah, I mean, we're both in, in writing arguing this, so this is not, yeah. not gonna be a surprise to anyone, but um, that we tend to not be discontinuity. So, so in the battle days, you know, culture historians often thought that the way indigenous cultures change is they have to, basically move and be replaced and these kinds of things. And in fact, I think you and I would both argue that there's an awful lot of, of indigenous endemic cultural change, you know, in response probably to all sorts of things, but among those things are kind of historical precedent, historical stimulus deciding to change for the reasons that other cultures decided to change, innovation, those sorts of things. Yeah, meeting, interacting with different people, you know, um, finding a, a better way to do something is, is also a possibility. And, and, and also, you know, and like living in a fairly dynamic environment too, and, and how that, uh, you know, the environment in the, in the, uh, in the Maritimes changed dramatically. Um, uh, even in the first few thousand years, people were here. Um, and that's going to change um, the places where you're going to live um, or choose to live. Um, and, uh, and it may also mean that, uh, uh, the places that you chose to live, we can't find anymore because they're either underwater or scoured away by, uh, by some other, some geological process or some, some incursion of water basically. Uh, yeah. So the, just that the, we're losing coastline at a remarkable rate and here, like around the world, 
people preferentially live on coastlines because they're really good places to live for a whole bunch of reasons transport food good view i suspect these aspects like good view are more important than we sometimes can interpret archaeologically yep yeah and and it's the same argument that i have that colorful rocks i think are probably you know we're if we think it's beautiful somebody in the past also did too you know like um uh, you know these gemstone quality rocks that people are using to make their stone tools with i don't think like a lot of this has to do with the technical um uh, uh ability like you know the technical ability of the person who's making the stone but also that the stone can be made in this way uh but it it uh, uh you know there are lots of stones that can make very nice um objects uh and and it seemed like frequently people in the in the maritimes chose beautiful red and pink and yellow and and uh white and clear rocks to make their make their stone tools out of so the listeners should know that ken actually can't see the color red but he's told <laughs> that these stones he works on are um are red and in fact uh so i'm i'm one of a few famous archaeologists in uh, new brunswick who uh there's a whole cadre of us that are are colorblind yeah and i think in fact all new brunswick archaeologists are colorblind it's just the different if you combine us we can actually see all the colors but i can't really distinguish blue gray and black i discovered uh when i tried to buy a suit um but uh and you can't distinguish red and green and a, a lot of you can't distinguish i think yeah. red and green i mean no one working for stantec could for a while i recall this is a this is like a an occupational requirement yeah 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 that's why we're um, not all in the military yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> So I, I wanted um, to go back to something though. So you um, you made a point about scale, which I think is really important. And I think that um, uh, just when you're talking about the scales that we work at for you know our, in, in each of our research projects, but I think when we're talking about archaeology more generally, um, scale you know at the at the very small scale, what Gabe is talking about, you know, you're talking you're looking at um, people gathered around a small campfire um, and the scales that I'm working at where I'm looking at these regions, the scale that Gabe works at factors into the sorts of things that I'm looking at as well. And so when we're trying to build these kind of, I, I want to get towards a story that Gabe's able to tell uh, about a, a house floor in, in coastal Nova Scotia and looking at the patterning of people sitting around a fire, making tools and, and cooking food and, you know, breaking apart caribou bones uh, during the winter. Um, and that's a really interesting story. And I want to be able to tell that story. And so in the bigger pictures that I'm talking about, I'm bringing in various different scales of data. And so I'm, I'm talking about, in some cases, these little, these very contained spaces within somebody's house. Sometimes I'm talking about a whole site, which is another scale. Sometimes I'm talking about within a region, which is another scale. And then when we're talking about extra regional, so we're talking about going, people traveling like much farther distances. And so the we kind of zoom in and out on these scales to for for different levels of inference basically yeah i think that's that's a good point to make um and and i think that one of the things that um just as you're making that point i was thinking about um we, we should mention that one of the other you're in a geography department now or it's a geography archaeology department am i correct geography and environment but we're the, geography the and environment yeah yeah okay right um but you do a, a fair bit of spatial work um, yeah. on on considering uh, about applying kind of GIS uh, geographic information system tools to things, um, and so 
one of the ways that we actually get at these kinds of different scales is via interdisciplinarity, right? So we, one of the things that's really, really fun about being an archaeologist, and when we were talking about this at the beginning, you know, why do you actually do archaeology? One of the reasons that I do archaeology, and I think this is the same for you because I know we've had these discussions, is you get to like call up interesting people and ask them about things yeah. that you don't really know very much about, you know, so you can, you know, call a geologist sometimes and be like, you know, hey, <laughs> could you please explain this rock to me? Or, um, you know, I, I would like to know more about these kinds of coastal yeah. processes. How old is this till? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and and I also want to just just briefly loop back to something Ken in characteristic modesty was talking about um, about color and uh, one of uh, Ken had a paper in the Journal of Anthropological Archaeology. What year was it, Ken? Was it 2021? 2020. Yeah. 2020. Late right? late 2020. So. Well, that's why we lost track of it undoubtedly because yeah. we were all. Um, I mean, I was hiding under a, a desk in uh, in West Virginia, curled up with a pepperoni roll and a bottle of Fireball at the time. Yeah. I had, I had escaped to New Brunswick for a few months, but I was back in Toronto, living the dream in lockdown there. Yeah, I was having a great time compared to you. Um, and uh, and but but what your work showed, and I think this is really interesting because it's a very kind of humanizing thing. And I should let you explain it, except that sometimes when I let you explain this, you go on for too long. Um, <laughs> but basically, showed that people were doing all sorts of stuff to rocks that were not increasing the the kind of ability to make them into tools, but was changing their color into a more preferable color. Is that a yeah. fair summary? Yeah, yeah. And they were and they were selecting particular uh, when they were working and making stone tools, they were getting rid of particular colors at one stage of the point of the process of making a tool um, and and making tools out of a different color of this rock. So this Washington Oak chert that I talked about at the start comes in a whole range of colors from blue purple to black. To, uh, to red, uh, uh, um, translucent gray, yellows, all this stuff. And the reds and the yellows and the translucent stuff appears to be more popular through time or be, gets to be more popular. And what we can see in the way that people are making their stone tools is they reduce a large rock that you find on the beach down to a stone tool that we would find in an archeological site. We see patterning that seems to indicate that the kind of blue gray and the blacks and those, those rocks get kind of cast aside in order to get towards making a tool that is red, uh, it seems like is, mo is the most common. Fantastic. And, and this is, you know, this segues into a, a segment that we're going to do each. So I, our plan is, I guess we'll, we'll key in the listener, but without incurring any obligations, we're going to try to make this a fortnightly podcast, yep. um, which, uh, and and the fortnightly podcast will take the approximate form of what we've just done, except it'll be more focused because we're talking about something specific. So uh, I think next week, or sorry, next uh, two weeks, or, so the week after next, and we're not sure when we're airing this yet either. So that's why I haven't told you what day it is. <laughs> it could be next week. It could be tomorrow. Yeah, it could, could be 2023 though. Um, maybe, maybe you bank them all together and you just sort of binge the whole podcast. You know, that's a great idea. That's, I mean, that's, you know, save this up for a road trip. Yep. Um, we could, we could just drop it as a box set. You know, you, <laughs> we'll mail you, we'll mail you CDs. Yeah. DVDs. So you get the yeah. video with it. Yeah. Or laser discs. Even. Yeah. I mean, if that would be an option, um, you know, coming live on Betamax, it's the New Brunswick Archaeology <laughs> Podcast. We're also, feel free to write us with better names for this. We're, we're, yeah. we're happy to have that. My, my um, wife has given us a couple of suggestions and, and you can vote in the comments below here, uh, 
Uh, let me just pull these up here. Well, you, you keep going, Gabe. I'll, I'll pull up our, our suggestions for today. I was just thinking that that that's that's very my wife's suggestion was that was that maybe maybe the world has had enough of listening to Ken Gabe talk about archaeology just from us talking too loudly in restaurants and bars. <laughs> so so I think it's great, you know, fantastic. Um, but uh, but but one of the segments we're going to do in each episode while Ken pulls that up is this is and we're going to call it hit pieces. And we're, what we're going to try to do is these these hit pieces, each hit piece will be. A uh, we'll, we'll be trying to keep you up on the recent research from the region. And this is also supposed to keep us honest about making sure we stay up on the literature. Yeah. And one of the hit pieces we wanted to bring up is actually thinking about the kinds of issues Ken was thinking about in his paper on stone tool color, particularly the color red. Um, you know, basically, that paper that you did, Ken, is sort of the last 3,000 years. Would that be a fair? Yeah, and, yeah, kind yeah. Of, and, and really, actually, yeah brings in data from the last 3000 years, but a real focus on um, the period from about 1500 years uh, till sort of European contact-ish or a little bit later. Yeah. So late yeah. woodland period, basically late yeah. maritime woodland. Fantastic. And, and that was, I was, I was excited. I was a part of that field research. It's the, you know, live in the United States for most of my life. And the only time I get threatened with a gun is out doing field research at Washington Oak Lake with Ken Holyoke. But we'll bring that up at a later podcast. That's, I think, yeah. in the biz, that's a teaser. Um, yeah. But is this article recently on SSRN? And, and we'll create show notes so you can find the links to this. SSRN is, I believe, a preprint service that posts articles that will soon be published or are going to be published somewhere at some point. By Nathaniel Ketchell, um, uh, who's at Dartmouth College, in Hanover, New Hampshire, I believe he's a postdoc there, uh, acquaintance of ours, uh, nice fellow, and he has a, a, this paper up, Color as a Key Characteristic in the Terminal Pleistocene Fluted Point Period Lithic Economy in Northeastern North America. So that's referring to these, these are, uh, early colonizing events, the first, um, the first uh, archaeologically known indigenous people in the region were also selecting for color, this kind of thing that, that Ken's talking about, yeah. um, even more recent. So and it's also, it's the color red, which is really cool. Nathaniel um, yeah. in this paper is looking at uh, Mansungin Lake, which is up in, you know, far northern Maine. I actually spent two days out with him there this summer. Uh, and it's, you know, 50 miles, that's a thousand kilometers past cell service. One of those <laughs> operations. Pretty relaxing, actually. It's nice. It's good. Um, and then uh, we've got a couple of other hit pieces, I believe, Ken. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, we've got, uh, uh, this isn't from our region, but it's kind of an interesting new finding in uh, human origins research, which is kind of, we're talking a lot about early people this week, even though I think next week is also, or the next episode is specifically about Paleo-Indians. No, next, next week is specifically the history of archaeology in New Brunswick. Oh, okay. All right. There you go. Yeah. Um, the listener so, can listen to them in whatever order they want, provided yeah. they give us enough fortnights to complete them. That's the <laughs> trick. Um, so there's a new finding. So there's a, um, we've talked a little bit about pre-Clovis. Um, so Clovis we talked about is a, a kind of the first sort of continent-wide cultural manifestation that we see that uh, there's a lot of continuities from people in the Southwest of the United States all the way up into uh, Truro, Nova Scotia, basically share a particular type of spearhead um, that we call Clovis. Um, I don't know, can we figure out some way to put like an animation where we can show projectile point? Like, on the yeah we should try to do that um well what we should do is we'll link uh well 
when we when we do the the paleo indian um episode what we could do is we can link the bradley et al article from aena yeah or share the, the screen pictures. so we can at least see what a the listeners can see what we're talking about in any case yeah. prior to uh, the the first occupants of North America are what we kind of gloss as pre-Clovis. Um, and a lot of these sites um, are kind of like a scattering of, of artifacts. They're clearly human manufactured, um, but uh, some of them have uh, spearheads or, or small bifaces. So stones that have been basically made into um, a projectile of some kind. Um, but a lot of them are just kind of an amalgam of, of a lot of uh, flake tools. So kind of in the process of making a stone tool, you're just sort of breaking off sharp pieces, um, maybe using them as cutting tools, that kind of thing. Um, the site Cooper's Ferry, which is in uh, Northwest Idaho, I think. And if my, like I thought Idaho, Idaho was like in the Great Lakes region. And then I look at a map of America and it's like almost on the West coast. Um, but basically it's just never south figure of- out where Alberta is either. If this cheers you up, I always get Alberta and Saskatchewan, you know, confused and, you know, but, who knows. Uh, so, so where, where, um, where this is, is basically not too far South of where I am, um, uh, in Alberta. Yeah. At the right, right area. Yeah. Basically. So Alberta is Northern Montana. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so, the, yeah, and yeah. I, and I think this is South of Montana, isn't it? Yeah. Geography wise. I mean, everything's South of Montana. There you go. Yeah. Um, and so this site was found several years ago um, and had um, has a Clovis component to it um, and has uh, some occupations dating to upwards of, I think, around 9000 years ago. Um, but the most recent information that has come out, um, they thought that there was probably a pre Clovis component there. Um, what's interesting about this new finding is that they have recovered projectile points um, of a type that is not Clovis. Um, that appear to be uh, uh, the date to somewhere between 15,000 and 16,000 years ago, um, which makes it one of the oldest pre-Clovis sites that is reliably dated um, and is one of the only contexts where a sort of a series of projectile points has been found, uh, stemmed projectile points is the other key part there. So these look like they were probably hafted onto some kind of spear or something like that. Uh, in a so technology- what's hafted mean? Uh, hafted is, yeah, yeah. is when you uh, you basically take uh, a stick, so your spear shaft, um, and you take a projectile point, um, so the rock that you are you've made, uh, and you place the rock in either a split at the top of that stick or another stick that goes into that one called a foreshaft. You wrap it in sinew or some other binding, um, and uh, it's adhered there, and that way the uh, the projectile travels either with the spear or on the um uh, uh the what's the word i'm looking for foreshaft you can throw that spear at an animal and uh and take them down with it basically yeah, yeah. and then and then recover your projectile point that you spent all that time making from them. yeah 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 so it's the the, sh the shaft of an arrow or the shaft of a spear it's the connecting part yeah and and just Great. kind of interesting because it's very early and it's among one of the few contexts of would appear to be stemmed points and they look characteristic of what has been called the western stemmed tradition that they thought probably was coeval with clovis for a long time but maybe it's a little bit earlier um and it may show may it may demonstrate either connections with uh clovis at a later point or that there was some kind of earlier colonizing population that um uh, was either out you know, had some kind of interaction with Clovis or that they occupied the same areas. 
um, and the, the folks that made Clovis points either won out the day or, or that technology became the vogue of the day. Or in a year, we might find out that the dates at this uh, Cooper site were, were totally banjaxed. And yeah, it's not yeah, as old as we that, thought. That is, that is also, <laughs> I, I guess that, I guess what makes this a little bit legit is like reading through it, these are from features. So like what Gabe talked yeah. about, these non-portable. And so these aren't just artifacts and like random chunks of charcoal that they're finding. Um, they're finding what appear to be cultural features that are small pits that are probably some kind of fire pit. Um, and the artifacts are coming from within those pits, which that gives you a little bit more reliable, um, reliable information. But, uh, but yeah, a lot of this origin stuff is, uh, um, it's whiz bang and it's new every time. And then, then somebody raises, uh, sh a shaky finger about it, but, uh, it's old every time it's always yeah. old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but as I tell my students, like, I mean, even when I was an undergrad, pre-Clovis was still pretty kind of like, still hadn't kind of been widely accepted as, as you know, that like this stuff is real. And I, I think it'd be pretty undeniable that Pre-Clovis is real. It's just how many of these sites are legitimate and how old are they? Yeah, there's a good article about this in, say, I'm, I'm going to do the thing where I, I say what the article is, but I actually can't remember, so we just got to put in the show notes. But in the old review of archaeology, <laughs> uh, the late Brian Robinson had a, had a good article kind of just setting the kind of the stage for the pre-Clovis Clovis argument and sort of talking about the degree to which a, a pre-Clovis site is held as opposed to a, um, a Clovis site. Um, There's sort of three criteria that, that make them like uh, uh, sort of uh, it's and Sassman have like these three criteria. And one of them is like, yeah. you know, it directly underlies a, a later component, like a, a later Clovis component. Um, it's yeah, got to have stratigraphically intact. Yeah, yeah. three free artifacts and dates, I think. Yeah, and and that the yeah. artifacts are very clearly made by humans. Yeah, um, yeah. and that's where it all breaks. That's the one where a lot of, and, and you know, the, the colleague of mine, colleague of ours, uh, um, is is a, a couple of colleagues of ours actually are still Clovis first years, I believe. Um, and and I've I've been increasingly, I guess, sympathetic to to, to some of these arguments. I found myself. A, a little more sympathetic to the the Clovis first position, I think, but some of it has been just that the um, it does tend to be that one of these sites will be a little shaky on at least one of those criteria, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think that's interesting, but we'll talk more about that. So what we should do is actually no one wants to listen to us talk about pre Clovis. We should get somebody on that we should that deals with this. That's actually more interesting. It would be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, you and I could ramble on about this for for ages, and yeah. and uh, yeah, we're we're not really we're not really paleoni guys. Although, um, although I should say, not, although, to, not to to my own horn, yeah, I've I've published more on paleoindians than anyone else in New Brunswick. The preeminent scholar on paleoindians yeah, in the precisely Americas. right. That's right. Yeah, I've yeah. I've written, I what I was I think the sixth author on a on a fairly long paper about paleoindians, and I was the third author on a short paper about paleoindians. So, yeah. so that's right, folks. Um, feel free to email in with your questions <laughs> <laughs> about that topic. And, and Ken and I will endeavor any, to find any of your pre Clovis finds. Uh, we're the, we're the, the line to call. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Should, I, we, have, I should we have a phone in line for this, for the show for like radio questions, you know, we really should. And we should do it like the old, um, the old uh, coast to coast AM with, with Art Bell, you know, West of the Rockies, you're on the air, you know, and the, <laughs> the, and it'd be perfect. Um, so we've got one other hit piece that uh that i want to share and this is this is really hot off the press accepted 
uh, December 14th of oh. uh, just last year. And so I, it's just out in the most recent Journal of Archaeological Science. And uh, it's by Dylan R. Kelly and his colleagues, um, uh, mostly at the University of New Hampshire, where he uh, or she also appears to be. And the article is called Expanding Omnidirectional Geospatial Modeling for Archaeology, a Case Study of Dispersal in a New England Colonial Frontier between 1600 and 1750. And so that appears to be applying uh, GIS modeling to understanding the uh, European spread throughout the region. Um, and it looks uh, really interesting. Um, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, so I think where Ken and I were gonna sort of wrap up to, to, to whet your appetite here, because we are pretty much each looking at a half-finished bottle of Courvoisier at this juncture. <laughs> Let's just go through a couple of what we think are some of the big questions that, that we're gonna look at. And, and some of this idea is derived a little bit from uh, our close colleague, Matt Betts. Um, and I worked on this book a while ago. And, and in that book, we thought about what are sort of big questions in archeology span in the region. And that's derived from um, we're, uh, uh, two big papers, one in Presidio National Academy of Science, one in American Antiquity, <clears throat> talking about big questions for archaeology in general, right? And a point that I think Matt and I wanted to make and that Ken and I want to make now is that we think New Brunswick archaeology is just as interesting, just as compelling, um, just as interesting and an environment to approach these kinds of questions as really anywhere in the world. You know, that there's, you know, you could work anywhere you want, but this is, you know, the Northeast, far Northeast is as good a place as any, and probably a better place than most to get at a lot of um, different archeological questions. And we were gonna sort of just go through a couple ones that motivate us, I think. And so do you wanna go first, Ken, about, you know, what you think, you know, what's some big question in the region that you think New Brunswick or the Maritimes can speak to? Um, I think I, I think it's really interesting to think about, uh, like the, the late woodland is kind of what I'm most familiar with. And, and so this is a period from, depending upon who you talk to, starts about 1500 years ago to about 1000 years ago. Um, kind of, uh, I think you guys fell on 1300 uh, years ago is sort of uh, the when when yeah, the late woodland starts. The Dave Black, and, the Dave Black date, I think. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the period leading up to between about 1300 years ago and let's say 800 years ago. So leading up to and around a thousand years ago, there's this kind of this watershed moment in in a lot of North American archaeology, actually. Um, and it's a time period when you have um, uh, ancestral Wabanaki. Um, sort of intensifying their behaviors in terms of how much they're interacting with one another, um, how they're sort of um, uh, getting their food, like a, a subsistence resources and that kind of thing. But their neighbors are also now starting to grow corn. And so um, I think one of the big questions is, uh, you know, whether or not there was any kind of um, adoption of, of, you know, domesticates in, in the Maritimes for one, but also if there wasn't, why? Um, and, and I think that's a really interesting case study because there's so few examples um, in North America of, of groups that sort of eschewed this move toward uh, sedentary 
um, domesticated, uh, you know, horticulture and, agri and agriculture um, uh, in the period before European contact. So, yeah. And the, um, some of the, the listeners too may have, may have recently read um, David Graeber and David Wengrow's yeah. book, uh, which is called The Something Dawn of Everything. Dawn of Everything. Great. It's on your yeah. shelf. Fantastic. Yeah. And one of the things about that book is, it's in many ways exactly about the question Ken just outlined, right? Which is, there are all of these things that we sort of thought we knew about how people's economies, how they make their livings, how they organize themselves socially, and how they move around the landscape that are supposed to have these kind of causal effects. They're supposed to be these kind of packages. And it turns out that there's all sorts of cross-cultural evidence that that doesn't work the way we kind of thought it did. <laughs> and that's a topic that uh, both of us have worked on a lot, actually. That's sort of, yep. it's kind of in our wheelhouse. Um, so uh, I'm going to send it back to you. And I, I know, I, I hope you say this one that I want you to say, because oh, I know you've been working on this topic for a while, you and Matt, you might Black present. Suit. Yeah, there we go. Okay, right. So, yeah. and, and that riffs on what, and what you're talking about. And, and Matt and I've been working on this idea of uh, complexity. And so Complexity, which is which is actually kind of an unfortunate term for it because it implies that the opposite is simplicity. But when an anthropologist says complexity, what they basically mean is like how many moving parts does the socioeconomic organization of a group have? And so the premise is that sort of like at the one end um, uh, of, of complexity, you have the hunter-gatherer band, which is like a small, probably kind of family group with really, really limited and actually really interesting, though, political leadership, which is which is extremely limited, right? So the actual like coercive power of a hunter-gatherer headman or or whatever the cultural equivalent of a headman is, is like pretty much nil, right? It's like, you know, offer some good advice, a couple of honorary privileges, you know, and um, and then kind of the opposite end you imagine like states right where there's all sorts of coercive power there's these big bureaucracies um if you're acting out they'll put you in a hospital or an asylum or prison or kill you or something and in between that though there are these um other kinds of social organization and but for a long time hunter gatherers with very very few exceptions and one of the classic exceptions was the Northwest Coast of North America. But hunter-gatherers, that is people who didn't have domesticated plants and animals other than the dog, that they just didn't have political organization that extended beyond basically the family band. And so there were um, there was very little inequality within groups. There was very little um, uh, kind of uh, connections among these, these bands that were actually forming larger political organization. And one of the things that Matt and I are just sort of working on is this idea that it seems like this ebbs and flows um, among hunter-gatherers. So people on the Maritime Peninsula, people in the Wabanaki homeland were hunter-gatherers um, until after European contact, even though um, almost all hunter-gatherers know how to grow plants, right? They're so intimately involved with the natural world. There's no way they don't have some sense of how this could be done. They've got neighbors who are domesticating plants. Um, that there seems to be a kind of conscious choice to just not do that, but to still have many of the things that you would expect to go along with that occur here. 
Um, give you one example, uh, Bill Farley and Amy Fox and I looked at house floors, right? Come back to house floors. And at about the time period we're talking about, you know, 1,300,000 years ago, where supposedly maize proliferates in Southern New England, although there's, there's some debate about how important that is, um, houses get bigger, which is exactly what you would expect to happen. Um, but it turns out up here, they get bigger too, not as, not as in as pronounced of a way, but there still is that change. And so we did this comparative paper on that. Um, so there's all sorts of interesting stuff going on. And, and um, hunter-gatherer culture change is a big question in the discipline right now, yeah. trying to figure this all out. Um, I probably rambled on a little bit about that, but I'm glad I selected the answer you were you were trying to set up there. Yeah, yeah, and it. and for the, and for those who don't know, Matt, when we say Matt is uh, Matthew Betts, who's the uh, Atlantic Collections Coordinator at the Canadian Museum of History, um, and so he right. and Gabe recently uh, in 2021 published uh, the first uh, comprehensive textbook on the region, uh, the archaeology of the Atlantic Northeast, available through University of Toronto Press. No, not a sponsor yet. But, uh, maybe, oh, but we should add, I mean, since, since should, you've already done their social media in the past, I believe. That, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so thanks. Thanks for the plug. You know, I, I, uh, it's, it's great. Um, bedtime reading. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and actually I should mention, um, just as long as we're moving product here, um, Ken and I also just had an edited volume out, which, uh, is it on your shelf? I, or is it, it's, uh, I think is it's it your laptop stand? Uh, hold on. The, oh, mine's right here. Here, I've got, I've got. Um, I think mine's at my office, and actually, so is your, so is your textbook. Because this makes there a you go. fine laptop stand. This is um, the far northeast, three thousand BP to contact. BP means before present, which in you know, kind of confusingly, it actually means before nineteen fifty. But what can you do? Yeah. Um, and and that this book actually deals with a lot of the issues that we just were describing. So. Yeah. And it, it's got um, a lot of good work in this by a bunch of scholars. Um, I can't remember how many authors do we have in there, but a lot. 17 chapters. Um, yeah. And, and I think of those 17 chapters, there's only three or four that are single authored. So, yeah. So good number of you know, people working on these kinds of questions. Um, yeah. And, and both of those things are fun. Um, so we're, we're, we're probably running long here, Ken. Um, yeah. But can I just, maybe I'll just kind of bullet point list some other, I think, big questions. Yeah, yeah. And you can add some more if I miss any. Um, the relationships between coastal people, people living on the coast, people living on the interior. What are their yep. connections? What are their interactions? We know now that um, during the woodland period, there were people living on the coast year round and people living on the interior year round, right? So that contradicts, that might be another myth about New Brunswick archaeology that contradicts. Um, villages which relates to the complexity question what when when do we see the origins of these villages how uh, you know so basically communities that are bigger than small camps um i think we're uh, you and you alluded to this earlier questions of just really really long distance exchange so what are the interactions between new brunswick and the rest of um north how, america how integrated was it through time and and uh, and uh, the patterning that we're starting to see that there's sort of these like flashes of interaction where there's sort of broader extra extra regional interaction. And then there's sort of this like kind of a little bit more closing up and then it uh, comes and it spreads again. So absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then 
there's some questions just of archaeological practice. So we actually um, certainly kind of hope that maybe among the listeners someday for this podcast, we would like, which we hope to grow, will include, you know, uh, you know, some 15 year old kid that would like to be an archaeologist, right? And so can get a sense of, of what that means. And also actually a sense that it's actually an achievable goal. Um, yeah. So so Ken and I are, are professors, which is actually a fairly niche profession um, for, for archaeologists. Um, but we both worked in this thing called cultural resource management, which is actually projected to need more um, people than we're training to do the work. So yeah. if, something um, like in the States alone over the next 10 years, there's going to be like literally hundreds of positions left unfilled um, and talking to colleagues across Canada in CRM industry. Um, they're clamoring for work right now, uh, for workers right now. Um, and it's expected to continue at least for the next few years. So, yeah. so, so one of the things that we kind of want to convey is to make this a kind of approachable discipline. But so within, within that though, I think we can think about a couple of big questions for um, archaeological practice. And one of these is that you, New Brunswick taxpayer, are paying for an awful lot of archaeological research, which is done um, ahead of development. Um, and so you might wonder, why do you not know more about that? That, I think, is, in fact, one of the big questions going forward, which is that why is there a lot of archaeological research going on or archaeological work going on that is not being appropriately translated to the public? Yep. Um, another question uh, has to do with salvage. You know, what are, what are we doing about rising sea levels? Um, how are we going to address this? Um, and then finally, I think, and this is, is an enormous issue um, dealing with collaborative archaeology. So going about archaeology in a way that is respectful and considerate of Indigenous views. Um, what's the relationship between archaeologists and Indigenous communities? What's the relationship between those communities um, and governments? Um, and uh, how much involvement is there in terms of like um, uh, regulatory control over how archaeology is done, both like research work and CRM work, where are objects stored, who has access to them. Um, and these are all like evolving and very active, um, uh, uh, you know, very forefront topics in North American archaeology, I think specifically in Canadian archaeology. Um, and as Gabe mentioned at the top of the show, um, we're talking about New Brunswick, which is an unceded territory. Um, and we're talking about archaeology and uh, Indigenous sovereignty as it relates to archaeology at a time where um, uh, nations are probably being, are moving toward uh, comprehensive land claims in the region, um, some of which have been publicized so far, and some of which are probably going to be publicized in the future. And, and which um, may draw on archaeological data as well. So yeah. So considering the, the importance of that um, moving forward. Um, so Ken, I think we've done the thing where we got excited about this and, we, and we, we've talked for a while. And, yep. uh, and uh, I see here in my notes, I'd, I'd put 30 minutes. I think we've done, we've done a little bit longer, but we can warn the listener you know, that they can listen to us. At, well, they can listen to you at one and a half speed. That's actually two speed for me because I'm from New England. <laughs> um, but you've got that, you're, you're developing that Alberta draw. So yeah. Yeah. Um, they didn't so, give me my cowboy hat yet, though. Well, they don't give it to you. They're earned, I'm told. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, 
but but I'm excited. I got to get out there sometime so we can go to that that pawn shop you showed me the picture of that just had like saddles. Yep. Yeah, yeah. that's terrific. Oh. Tack shop. It's shop, got a cowboy right? boot shop right beside it too. Actually, that's what I actually need. Yeah. That'll that'll I'll be about five foot seven in, in those. <laughs> All right, gentle listener, this was fun. Um, we'll see you in in one fortnight. Yep. Um, and. Uh, uh, I'm Gabe Reinick, and uh, my co-host is Ken Holyoke, and uh, we hope you enjoy the, the rest of your uh, two weeks, and we'll see you again soon. See you Take next care. time on either Two Sharp Travels uh, or Talking Through Screens or perhaps even The Aperture Report. Oh, that's that, and, and, and. Feel free to write in. I mean, we'll take other suggestions. We'll put our contact information in the show notes. Um, it's the same the same contact information you can use to send us pictures of funny shaped rocks. So um, we will see you soon, uh, or we we won't see you soon because it's a podcast. But we will talk to you soon. Um, take care.